Support has been provided by an independent educational grant from Allergen, Astellas, and Medtronic. CME for this podcast is available at AUA University. AUAU.auanet.org. We're good. All right, so welcome again. Contemporary Pharmacology for Overactive Bladder 2019. So, we'll move on to patient goals and expectations in overactive bladder pharmacotherapy, a sticky wicket area if there was one, to, to, to use a British phrase. So we all know what overactive bladder is, urgency, frequency, uh, with or without incontinence in the absence of other pathology. Defining how we, uh, as practitioners or regulatory agencies or even industry, uh, evaluate our outcomes with drug therapy or actually any therapy for overactive bladder depends on the perspective of the person doing the evaluation or the organization. Rarely do we ever actually consider the patient. So there's lots of different ways we can look at outcomes, uh, diaries, pad tests, urgency, frequency. We can even look at patient-reported outcomes, but that's actually not the patient's perspective. We are asking patients for particular outcomes. We're not actually asking the patient what they want. It's a, a PRO is, a, is an instrument that we design that we give to the patient. Is that what the patient really wants? So what does the patient want or expect, and is it realistic, is it achievable, and is it necessary in, in overactive bladder? And if it's not realistic or achievable, what should we do? Should we improve communication? Should we talk to our patients a little bit better? Should we, uh, using a golf term, should we sandbag our patients and tell them, well, the drug kind of works, but it doesn't work all that well, or this intervention doesn't work all that well? Uh, or should we then provide really aggressive treatment uh, so that we can reach some perfect outcome uh, that we as a practitioner or a regulatory agency uh, would desire. So I stole this from, from Willett Whitmore, uh, a very noted urologist uh, from New York at Memorial Sloan Kettering, who used this quote in reference to prostate cancer, one of the more famous quotes in urology. Uh, but I'm going to apply it to overactive bladder, and it says, is cure necessary uh, in those for whom it is possible, and is cure possible in those for whom it is necessary. And you can apply that to overactive bladder. Is cure, which of course we don't cure overactive bladder, necessary? And is it possible? Overactive bladder is very complex, and uh, I'm not going to go over the physiology, but uh, Dr. Chappell will uh, shortly. Uh, we really don't know what causes it uh, in any individual uh, patient. Uh, there's lots of possibilities, and, and Dr. Chappell will cover uh, most of these uh, proposed uh, etiologic and pathophysiologic pathways. We also don't really understand the natural history of overactive bladder and, uh, and the aging bladder. We know that overactive bladder certainly increases uh, in prevalence uh, in an aging population. But the urinary tract is not like cheese and fine wine. Uh, it does not get better with age. Uh, bladder anatomy and physiology changes. Detrusor overactivity clearly increases with age. Detrusor underactivity clearly increases with age and comorbidities increase. And many of these comorbidities contribute to lower urinary tract symptoms. And this makes evaluating our outcomes in overactive bladder incredibly difficult, because if we, if we start at one point, uh, at some point in the future, there's all these comorbidities that play in uh, uh, to uh, the way we look at outcomes in overactive bladder. And there are lots of comorbidities that contribute to overactive bladder as we age, and that's just a short list of them. Uh, all of which can make our intervention on day one seem not so effective on day 10 or 20 or 90 or five years from now, 
because of these comorbidities of playing into uh, our treatment of overactive bladder. So despite these complexities, what do patients actually expect when they're, when they're in our office? Well, certainly uh, that's, that's one expectation, and I would, I would say that that's an unrealistic expectation, at least for overactive bladder. Um, do patients expect resolution of urgency and frequency in nocturia and improved quality of life or not? Maybe they don't expect to be cured, uh, and that's not from my perspective, but, but from their perspective. The realities of overactive bladder therapy, no matter what we do, is that it's a low cure rate, no matter what intervention we, we choose, and it's only a modest decrease in urgency and frequency and a modest decrease in incontinence. And virtually everything that we do has adverse effects, and they, depending on what country you live in, have variable costs associated with them. Uh, so when we look at our outcomes, uh, what we expect or what regulatory agencies expect or what uh, versus what the patient expects, they can be uh, rather quite different. Uh, and, and this, uh, which was a, a, a well-done study from England Journal of Medicine a number of years ago, looked at a variety of different outcomes uh, from both the patient's perspective uh, and from us, the clinician's perspective, uh, and even from the industry perspective. And this compared Botox to antimuscarinic in patients uh, who had incontinence at baseline. And they randomized uh, Botox to antimuscarinic, and it doesn't really matter the, the details. What does matter is the outcomes. And if we look at dry rates, now these are all incontinent patients, uh, and we look at dry rates, our expectation, of course, is that the patient wants to be dry, and if they're not dry, they're not going to be happy. And if you look at the dry rates from that well-done study, um, the dry rates in the anticholinergic arm, uh, 11 to 13 percent, uh, depending on how you measure it, and in the Botox arm, about 25 percent, pretty miserable dry rates. And yet when the patients were asked, were you very much better or better, more than half in both arms were better. So clearly, or, or much better, so, so clearly they were happy without being dry. Um, so it's clear that patient and physician goals are often not aligned. Patient goals have a limited correlation uh, with conventional measures of OAB severity uh, and improvement. And patient goal achievement shows no significant correlation with objective measures of treatment outcome in trials and all trials of antimuscarinic therapy. So then I ask, or you should ask, so what's the patient want? What are they asking for? It's an interesting question. If they're not asking to be dry or cured, what are they asking for when they're in your office? Um, and maybe it's this, maybe it's their own self-determined goals. This is some work done by Linda Brubaker, started about 10 or 15 years ago. And basically what she does uh, is she asks the patient, well, what do you want to achieve uh, from, uh, from this intervention? And that intervention can be for a lot of different conditions. For example, she's done this uh, for pelvic floor disorders, prolapse, interstitial cystitis, overactive bladder, pessaries, a variety of surgeries. And basically asks the patient, well, what, what outcome do you want? Do you want to have decreased nocturia? Do you want to have decreased urgency? Do you want to decrease the amount of antimuscarinic, or if, if it's a surgical uh, intervention, do you want to decrease the amount of drug that you're on? And it's interesting. We looked at this uh, in, in one of the Botox trials uh, for neurogenic detrusor overactivity. It's quite interesting. It's quite instructive. On the left, when in the red circle, are patient-chosen outcomes. So the patient with neurogenic detrusor overactivity and incontinence could choose whatever they wanted as their outcome measure. And uh, you can see that about a third chose that they wanted to be dry, somewhat interesting. Uh, and then you have a variety of others, including reducing the number of medications that they take, 
Uh, that's their expectation. That's the outcome they wanted from, from, from their overactive bladder treatment. But it's not 100% of people chose to be dry. And actually, if you look at the difference between Botox and placebo in this trial, looking at patients' own outcomes, the difference between active arm uh, and placebo, and these are all the variety of different uh, uh, outcomes that patients could choose, it's really quite striking uh, that the placebo effect is considerably reduced uh, when the patient actually chooses their own outcome measure, and, and the success rate is actually reasonably high. Uh, anyway, so in summary, overactive bladder is complicated. Traditional measures of overactive bladder outcomes probably don't capture what the patient uh, wants, and it may not even be relevant to the patient. Um, communication is key, and I would say to understand your patient goals uh, is probably paramount. So I'm going to move on to uh, just a quick overview of the overactive bladder uh, guidelines uh, from the AUA. Uh, this was published uh, initially about 10 years ago. The AUA uses a, uh, a, a way to rate levels of evidence. So they look at a bunch of papers. They rate the paper as high, moderate, or low in terms of quality. Uh, through that quality analysis, they then uh, make a recommendation, I'm sorry, a, a, a statement, which can be a standard, where the benefits are clearly greater or lesser than the risks, uh, or the risks are clearly greater or lesser than the benefits, with a high level of ed evidence. Then you can have a recommendation uh, uh, where uh, the uh, uh, benefits are greater or lesser than the risks, but the evidence is not so good, and then you can have options uh, where the evidence really doesn't point one way or another. If there's little or no evidence, we can do a clinical principle, which is uh, sort of saying that the sky is blue, uh, and that's uh, everybody would agree the sky is blue. That would be a clinical principle. Uh, and an expert opinion uh, is uh, sort of uh, the consensus of the panel, which means this, that blue is a nice color for sky amongst the panel. They all agree that blue is a nice color for a sky. So, so that's, that's the type of evidence we have. And there were 22 total statements, but only three standards, which is kind of an indictment of our own literature. We don't have a lot of standards. We have a lot of clinical principles and expert opinions in overactive bladder, but not a lot of evidence to state what we believe to be true. So in the diagnosis, you guys are all familiar with this, the diagnosis, history, physical, urine analysis. Optional procedures include a culture, post-void residual, bladder diary, symptom questionnaires, and unnecessary in the initial evaluation, the uncomplicated patient, cystoscopy, urodynamics, and uh, uh, sonography. So no treatment is an acceptable option. First-line treatments include behavioral therapy, and behavioral therapy as a first-line therapy can be combined with drug therapy. In the initial AUA guidelines, there was no hierarchy or preference to any of the oral antimuscarinics. Uh, they were all given equal weight. There was no preference. Uh, and uh, there was a statement that uh, extended release formulation should be preferentially prescribed over immediate release if possible. Um, if patients uh, had unacceptable uh, side effects, uh, the options on the original AUA guidelines were dose modification or an alternative antimuscarinic, and we should manage side effects before abandoning therapy uh, in uh, patients who are otherwise having their symptoms adequately controlled by antimuscarinics. If their symptoms are good but they're having uh, AEs, dry mouth, et cetera, we should manage the AEs before abandoning therapy. And for patients uh, who are refractory to behavioral and medical therapy, they should see a specialist and then move on to third-line therapies, which at that time included sacral neuromodulation and PTNS. Botox was a third-line therapy at the time of the initial uh, 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 guideline, but uh, was not approved by the FDA. 
I'm going to skip through this. There was an update in 2015 where beta-3 agonists uh, were uh, approved uh, and they were added as, a, as an additional choice to antimuscarinics, a second-line therapy. Uh, the update also defined an adequate trial of a pharmaceutical agent as at least four to eight weeks and an adequate trial of behavioral therapy as eight to 12 weeks. And PTNS was changed from a recommendation, uh, changed to a recommendation from an option based on some additional data, and then Botox was approved and placed into the recommendations. There's a subsequent update to the AUA guidelines that Dr. Sandy Vasavita will go over on the plenary session, I believe, tomorrow. Uh, where combination therapy uh, is now recommended for patients who are refractory to either monotherapy. And Dr. Chappell will talk much more about that shortly. That's the uh, AUA overactive bladder uh, pathway. I'm going to thank you. Uh, that's our bridge in Charleston, where I'm from, and I'm going to move on to uh, Dr. Chappell. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Robner, for kindly asking me to be involved in this session and after your excellent interview uh, on this where you've gone through so much um, with so many presentations which uh, set the scene I'd like to just give you an update on the EAU guidelines these are guidelines which are produced every one to two years these are my conflicts and basically the guidelines use a PICO approach which is to look at a population look at the intervention scan the literature like a Cochrane review and look at the um, comparators and outcomes. These guidelines were updated in Copenhagen. The next update will be next year, in fact. And obviously, as we've already heard, just for the AUA guidelines, it emphasized the importance of taking a careful history. By the way, this guideline is available free on the net to anybody who wants to look for it under uh, Euroweb EAU guidelines. Obviously, its initial assessment is the same as the AUA guidelines, and it emphasizes the importance, as we've already heard from uh, Dr. Rovner, the importance of scoring uh, with questionnaires and so on, assessing the, what the patient actually wants. And of course, there are a multitude of different scores. The only thing that's come up just recently, which will be presented at forthcoming meetings, is the bladder assessment tool, which is uh, accredited by a seal process and which I think will allow um, people to interpret urgency as FDA approved standard because that is something that the uh, FDA have always had some concerns about and if you look at the guidelines you can see here uh, look at validated questionnaires is clearly strong what you'll see from these guidelines as I go through is it says strong or weak because in this guideline the latest developed DA guidelines is to get rid of A, B, C. Because A is obvious and C is obvious, but what's B? It's COM, C, COM, C. So they've used something called grade terminology or grade technology, which is used in modern guidelines, to say this is clear evidence, this isn't so, because it makes more sense. And of course, if you look at the summary of the evidence relating to other aspects, of course, your analysis is important, as we've already heard. Postboarding residual is essential. In this context, people often talk numbers with post-voting residuals, but it's important to relate the residual to the functional capacity, which is avoided volume plus the residual. And if you look at most of the so-called BPH studies, around a 40% voiding efficiency is taken as a cutoff, around 140, 150 mils. So if you've got a 100 mil residual, 
and you've got a functional capacity of 200, it's 50%. Whereas if the functional capacity is 400, it's of course 25%. So you can see it's very important, the frequency volume chart. And one thing to bear in mind, all of the drug studies that you see have bladder diaries. And that's probably why there's a placebo response that you see due to bladder retraining, patient's perception. I'll give you an example. A professor of law was referred to me recently. He'd been treated by two other urologists. He'd been given alpha blockers, beta-3, uh, antimuscarinics, and even Botox, and nothing had helped. We did a frequency chart. He was drinking three and a half liters of coffee a day. He stopped doing that. He was pretty well cured. If you just take a history, you might miss these things. So we have a normal functional bladder capacity, which is around three to 600 mils. Children at 30 mils at birth, increasing by 30 mils a year up to puberty. And you can see here, with normal voiding values, you can see where there's excessive intake of fluid, uh, high fluid materials. Remember, vegetables are 90% fluid. And of course, osmotic diuretics and other drugs or diabetes, diabetes insipidus. If you've got a reduced functional capacity, of course, with a normal capacity under anesthetic, then what you could have is a situation there's something interfering with the bladder's ability to store. Something irritative, unrarely CIS, but of course there could be painful bladder syndrome, bladder overactivity, or other functional disorder. And of course, if you have a shrunken bladder, uh, if they've been taking ketamine, for instance, which is rare, of course, or if they have post-TB or po end-stage painful bladder syndrome, you know the drug therapy is not going to work if you've got a shrunken bladder of 200 mils. So it's very important to think in these terms. Of course, it's very important to carry out upper tract imaging if you need it, but not routinely, just like the AUA guidelines and strong recommendation. Pad testing can be useful, but most people don't use it in clinical practice. Urodynamics, of course, if failing second-line therapy with drug therapy. So in my country, you have to use it before going on to Botox or sacral neuromodulation. But the logic of that doesn't make any sense because the evidence is that overactivity of the bladder isn't a prerequisite, as Dr. Rovner showed, for response to uh, either uh, Botox or it's been shown for sacral neuromodulation. Disease management, therefore, there are a number of different issues, and you can see this online when you read it. In terms of disease management, it's very important to think of other aspects. Think globally about the pelvic floor as a stress urinary incontinence and to deal with that accordingly. And of course, one has to think neurologically because there may be an underlying neurological cause. Just because you've got OAB, which is idiopathic, it doesn't mean they have not got a neurological condition which is brewing or something that you haven't picked up. And that's probably one of the reasons why with increasing age, there's an increasing incidence because you get neurological decline, as you all know. The AU guidelines have actually tried to categorize the level of the anti-muscarinics based on number needed to treat. And this has been in the guidelines for two or three years. And this can be useful to a degree, but it's rather subjective because the problem is you're comparing different randomized controlled trials. There is an element of error in the way in which you compare that. This is leading on to something which we presented at the EAU meeting this year, which is using a, a, a technique which somebody got a Nobel Prize for. This is working with uh, an American uh, academic colleague at, who works at the London School of Economics in London. And the principle is that you use something called multi-criteria decision analysis, a horrible term, and for goodness sake, don't ask me to explain the, uh, the mathematics behind it. But the principle is you get a group of worthies together who look and rate 
the positive effects of a drug, the negative effects of a drug. So you get a scaling, which you can put onto an, an, a mathematical scale. You then take the data from randomized control trials and you feed it into that model. So it's a way of normalizing things. And if you look at that, then what you take, for instance, if you're looking at OAB, favorable things, improvement in urgency, in urgency incontinence, frequency nocturia, and the adverse events that you see with drugs. So what you want is something, the more green or the more um, red, the better, because obviously it, it, they're, they're more positive for the drug. And you can see there, if you're looking at more red, it means that in fact it's less severe side effects, because from the rating that you give to these things, a lower rating is not so good for, for adverse events. And so you can see what you can do. And if you come onto the drugs, you can see that if you look at all existing drug therapy in this area, in trials compared to placebo, it's different if you use dose titration, you can see, well, very interesting, that mixed uh, drug therapy comes out favorably, and you can see that some of the antimuscarinics look slightly better than the others. And you can also vary the parameters, so you can look at different aspects, such as urgency, urgency incontinence, and so on, looking at the particular benefit of an individual drug. So it's a very, very powerful tool. So it may be useful in the future. It is approved by the European Medicines Agency. I don't think the FDA have quite got their head around it yet, but it may come there. And it can be used across the whole of medicine. So antimuscarinics, we know there's good evidence for their use. We know that in the elderly they can be a problem because of the cerebral effects. And we know that antimuscarinics, when used, uh, you can see here, uh, in different aspects, you've got to think of the other drug therapy that people are on, but also adherence to these is pretty poor, 20 to 30% in real-life practice. Mirabegron introduced in the EAU guidelines, equal weighting to the antimuscarinics, not second line. And if you look at the new therapy, you're going to hear about Vibegron from Dr. Wien, then you can see there's interesting data coming out about that. Drugs for stress incontinence in Europe, the drug duloxetine is licensed, but is rarely used because of the side effect profile. Estrogens can certainly be of helpful in urgency, and to some extent urgency incontinence in the postmenopausal female when given intravaginally on a long-term basis, but not for stress incontinence, of course. And of course, you've got the usual discussions about mixed incontinence, whether drug therapy is helpful or not. On the whole, it is if OAB is a major component. Desmopressin, we'll hear more about, strong evidence for its use. And don't forget in the male, uh, androgen deficiency, a recent consensus statement from the European Association suggesting that you could use it safely without increasing the risk of prostate cancer, as long as you exclude certain high-risk groups from the very high-grade cancers. And it can be very, it's more common than people realize and can be very beneficial. Botulinum toxin, strong evidence as a third-line therapy, sacral neuromodulation, strong evidence. The only difference to the AUA guidelines is sacral neuromodulation has put down more the level of drug therapy, and there is a concern about the cost of it because of the regular interventions, notwithstanding the fact there isn't any long-term data with it. Augmentation rarely used because of the side effect profile, and efficacy in mixed incontinence I've already mentioned you need to think about what you're dealing with. With increasing age, whatever you do, the efficacy of drug therapy is less good because the severity of the symptoms is often worse. And if you come down to the algorithm, which all guidelines have and which you could look at online, it sort of specifies very much what the AOA guidelines say.
So without more ado, if I could move on to the next presentation, please, sir. One of the things that's very important is to bear in mind what we're actually discussing in the field of overactive bladder and BPH. And so what I've tried to do here is produce an amalgam, and I hope by the end of this 15 to 20 minutes I will have convinced you that what we might have recognized as the mechanism action of these drugs is not absolutely true. These are my uh, conflicts of interest. My, I've got a doctorate in pharmacology, so I've involved myself as a hobby over many years working in the field of pharmacotherapy. And what I'm going to talk about are lonely tract symptoms, the innovation of the lonely tract and how this may be important, and contemporary views on mechanisms, in particular the sensory system. I own allegiance to the guy who trained me. He's a gentleman who introduced urodynamics in 1969 from the Middlesex Hospital in London, and he often used to say, the bladder is an unreliable witness, because at the end of the day, none of the symptoms you see are specifically disease or condition specific. Secondly, patients all tell us the symptoms the way they want to tell us, don't they? The word I always find most difficult in history is sometimes, don't you? Sometimes I get this, sometimes I get that. So history is very difficult. When you come on to it, as, pati as patient um, advocates and as clinicians, we always interview the patients and we draw our own conclusions based on our own views and knowledge. And so putting all that together, for instance, this is from Paul Abrams many years ago because he was rather concerned about the use of the term BPH. He used the term lonely tract symptoms. We've evolved from that, and now we use it for the male and the female for voiding storage and post-voiding residual symptoms. Because let's face it, most men with so-called BPH come up with storage symptoms, don't they? They've got a bit of a slow flow, but most men can take a bit longer to pee, and only 05 to 0.75% with severe symptoms with an IPSS greater than 30 actually go into retention each year. It's the storage symptoms, which is OEB, that bring them to see you. So what is BPH? And at the end of the day, if you look at it, the voiding symptoms are important. But look at this. There's nothing new here. This goes back to 2006. Men and women, look at the storage, voiding, and post-mictrician symptoms. Does that mean that the women there have BPH? Or does that mean the men have got OAB? Do those men have vaginas, and do those women have prostates? You can see it is not, not gender-specific the symptomatology. So think globally. Overactive is not a condition. It is a non-specific storage symptom complex. So like many things in medicine, we love labels. And our patients really love labels, don't they? You like to have a label. It gives you something to hang on to, to search the, the web about, and to come and tell us what we should know about it. So if you're talking about this, of course, we've seen the guidelines on how to interpret this. Urgency, which is a sensory symptom, which is sensed up here in the limbic system, at the key in the door syndrome, for instance. We all know that. If you've got a full bladder, put a key in the door, you need to go. When you've got to go, you've got to go. It's a compelling desire to pass urine, which is difficult to defer. Of course, if you've got urgency, you go more often. And if you go more often, you pass less urine each time. If you don't make it in time, particularly if you're female, you may have an incontinence episode, and it may wake you at night. And as we know, even in men, it increases with age, although incontinence is rare in men because of our tight bladder neck, distal sphincter and prostate, and long urethra. 
And of course, what is urgency? It's a sensation. It's not a motor phenomenon. People have the concept it's due to Detrou's overactivity stimulating the sensory receptors causing uh, an incontinent contraction. There may be an element of that, particularly in the neurological patients with a decentralized bladder, without doubt. Of course we don't fully understand the afferent situation because you've got pantral bladder syndrome, bladder pain syndrome, just to complicate the issue. And don't forget in men you've got the interaction as Ray Rosen said from the States many years ago, between lonely tract symptoms and age, and of course erectile dysfunction. Because erectile dysfunction clearly is also influenced by sensory mechanisms, as we know. That's how the, the PD-5 inhibitors work, not only on blood flow. And of course, if you come on to this, and Alan Ween was very heavily involved in defining the overactive bladder and has been involved in these discussions over many years, and these diagrams are ones that he modified from Tyre Hult in Copenhagen many years ago. This is the thing that makes BPH as a term a nonsense, doesn't it? BPH is a histological condition, and of course you may or may not have enlargement, you may or may not have other symptoms, and of course you may or may not have obstruction. And of course you certainly will, as you get older, have CNS problems, renal dysfunction, you may have a pituitary or hormonal factors, and you may have cardiovascular disease with fluid retention. So at the end of the day, you've got to realize that we're dealing with all of these issues, and sensory issues are important. So what the controversy is, is what are we actually talking about? Do we really want to use a label, or do we want to look behind it and understand how things are working, which as clinicians we obviously want to? Clearly there are different types of sensation, which we don't fully understand. We all know urodynamics, and we all know you don't use this unless you've tried primary and secondary therapy and it's failed and you're not quite sure whether you, the third-line therapy is appropriate, they've got a slightly raised residual, something doesn't fit. But of course, urodynamics carried out badly is worse than no urodynamics at all. This is just a historical slide. This is the first urodynamic equipment from the Middlesex Hospital in 1966. And it's called video urodynamics, nothing to do with video machines. It's from the Latin video, videre, to see, because they're using contrast. It's using a smoke drum, as you can see, and they use 35-millimeter camera footage. Of course, you're all familiar with the principle of either simple urodynamics without contrast or video urodynamics, and you can see the anatomy. And we all know what Detrue's overactivity looks like. But do we appreciate the fact that talking about this, we're talking, of course, about from a functional standpoint, and we're measuring urodynamic contractions. And we're using urodynamic contractions in a standardized fashion, which is non-physiological, filling the bladder fast. Remember, the bladder normally fills at one to four mils a minute, whereas in urodynamics at the lowest, you're going at 20 mils a minute. So it's provocation, which we've standardized through the ICS. And clearly, there may be the neurogenic group, where you've got a neurological disease process, or the idiopathic. Here is an example of why overactive bladder and bladder overactivity aren't the same thing. As you can see on there, wet women, 60% have to truse overactivity, 40% don't. And in men, it's 90%, because for a male to be incontinent, it's very likely they've got to truse overactivity. But you can see if they're dry, it's only 66% of men, because of course many of them will have prostate obstruction, which can be they're affecting to true behavior. And you can see in women it's 
So we're talking about a symptom condition which may or may not be related to Tetrusa overactivity. And of course, we you know the mainstay of therapy has been anticholinergics. And of course, everybody realizes that anticholinergics are acting on the Tetrusa muscle, aren't they? But are they? Of course they are. If you give atropine, you can put somebody into retention. But is that therapeutically how an antimuscaric reduces the uh, problem that you're seeing clinically, which is a sensory disorder? Of course they release, uh, they interfere with the uh, release and binding of uh, acetylcholine onto cholinergic receptors on the motor end plate. But don't forget it's more complex than that. You've got the urethelium and the suburethelial space in the bladder. Remember, the urethelium has a metabolic rate four times that of the detrusor muscle. And you've got suburethelial complexes. You've got the interstitial cells, which were described about 15 years ago, about 100 years before they were described in the gut, the, the interstitial cells of Cajal. And you can see that they're cholinergic receptors on all of those. So a detrusor contraction clearly is dependent on a functioning detrusor muscle with cholinergic innovation. But we do know, and have for many years, that that is probably not the target for overactive bladder treatment. We do know that there's crosstalk between the bowel and the bladder. They have the same innervation. And you often see bowel disturbances at the same time as OEB and vice versa in the animal models that demonstrate that. And you can see that shown clinically, that bowel actions and urinary function of course go together, and of course you, you know somebody with chordroquina has both bowel and bladder dysfunction. Micromotions have been suggested going back to Bullsit, and Drake more recently has taken up this banner, but this is usually using an isolated guinea pig bladder which can, can produce contractions. But are those agonal or real as in terms of, meta uh, of a functional import to the bladder? So if you look at a slide which is now over 10 years old, you can see here that if we're talking about the bladder, and this is one of the reasons why it's impossible to tissue engineer a bladder, you're talking about a complex structure. You've got a urethelium at the top, and you can see there that you've got cells which actually expand and reduce their basement membrane every time your bladder fills. You've got suburethelial cells which are communicating with the interstitial cells and the muscle. An example, I'm sure you've come across capsaicin and ricinifratoxin. They come from plant extracts. They're used by the Bushmen in southern Africa. In, they don't have karari. If you put this stuff in the water, the fish float to the top. If you put it in the bladder, capsaicin, you cause retention for six months. It doesn't act on the motor innovation. It degranulates the sensory nerves. If you use resinifratoxin, it produces less retention, but it can't be used clinically because it sticks to plastic and nobody's been able to actually synthesize it. Otherwise, it would be a magic bullet. You can see that there's non-neuronal release of neurotransmitters there. An example is nitric oxide. You all know clot retention. Clot retention is oxyhemoglobin. Oxyhemoglobin is the best scavenger of nitric oxide, which is a, a relaxant in the whole of physiology. Clot retention isn't real retention, it's just spasm of the bladder, it can't void, and painful. You wash out the clot and it goes away. Those neurotransmitters are released non-neuronally. Of course the detrusor muscle is important. If you haven't got one, you've got a clapped out bladder with an atonic bladder. But this is the target for the drug therapy. Antimuscarics act on the detrusor, but they also act 
on the urothelial space. And we can see this if you look at the complexities of pharmacology, the sensory nerves, and the mechanisms I've mentioned. You can see those are cholinergic receptors. These are on the interstitial cells, not on the muscle. So we use an anticholinergic. It's a dirty drug, as we know, with the side effects all around the body. A bystander effect is to interfere with contraction of the bladder. The positive effect is interfering with the sensory nerves, just like ricinifratoxin. Sacral neumodulation doesn't affect the bladder by a direct effect on the bladder, does it? Neither does PTNS. Beta-3 agonists, even though the FDA has insisted in the label, it relaxes the bladder. If it relaxes the bladder, why doesn't it increase residuals? It relaxes the bladder by an afferent mechanism. It's all a matter of terminology, isn't it? So the con controversy is really is how are these working? So let's move from the periphery to the center. Let's see where, what's happening. Whilst you're all sitting there, your bladders are filling, and subconsciously you're getting impulses going up through the periactal gray matter towards your brains. And what happens is that they're processed and go to the limbic system. That's why at the time of exam, students end up with increased frequency. If you have a stroke or dementia, you lose the higher control. And what's happening all the time we're sitting here, or st I'm standing here, is I've got negative impulses, inhibition going from the center down onto the pontine mictrician center. The pontine mictrician center is primed to contract the bladder. And what happens is when you give permission to void, you take off that negative inhibition and you then empty the bladder completely. And of course, there's functional MRI, although it's far from accurate, because until we have the, the new MRI machines, and people should start doing this work, the ones you can sit in, lying in an MRI machine when they did this and trying to void lying down is a bit messy and not very physiological. But nevertheless, you can see that the limbic system lights up. So really, what's the target of therapy? Obviously, the CNS is a target. But the trouble is, all CNS drugs have adverse events. I showed you duloxetine earlier, which is an SRI agent, causing nausea, vomiting, an anorexia, and you know, all the rest of it, and orgasmia, and difficulty sleeping. Is it a truser muscle? Well, as I've already mentioned, the truser muscle is a contractile mechanism. If you interfere with that, of course, you may say Botox acts on the detruser, the anticholinergic, doesn't it? The cholinergic effect. I'll come to that. Urothelium, of course, is a target and the interstitial cells. So, CNS out of the question. To acting on the suburothelial space, well, there's been a lot of work in this area, but at the moment, very limited data, except maybe botulinum toxin. If you look at the bladder, therefore, you've got a bladder distension giving sensory stimulation, and then you've got the non-neuronal release of neurotransmitters, which adds to that. As you stretch the bladder, more nerve uh, products are reduced, released, and they feed back, rather like in physiology, the, the, the white line and the flare, antidromic uh, transmission. And, of course, you've got these neurotransmitters. So what about targeting the myogenic component? Again, botulinum toxin, the anticholinergics, possibly the beta-3. But as I've already mentioned, I don't believe it's hitting the muscle side. Another problem for the huge amount of research we've seen at the AUA, the EAU, the SIU, not one signal 
one single animal model has ever led on to the development of any drug for OAB. If anybody can mention one to me, I'd be delighted to hear it. Antimuscarinics from deadly nightshade, from plant extracts. Beta-3, a failed drug, anti-obesity. Sildanafil, Tadalafil, the people who are at the placebo group in a drug developed for pulmonary hypertension with Viagra got erections, and so it goes on. How, many, how does botulinum toxin work? I'm sure you know that this colleague of yours from the States, Rick Schmidt, was the guy who was involved heavily with introducing sacral neuromodulation with Emil Tanago, and he then went on and took out the patent when he was at Denver University for Botox. And this is a patent which proves it, although it was slightly wrong like many early patents because it was suggested that three out of the five cases stated were for male patients and for prostate problems. Just goes to show serendipity. And you can see, therefore, botulinum toxin causes problems with release of all neurotransmitters, not just the antimuscarinics. And if you look at the phase two data that I published with Roger Domikowski, where it looked at 100, 150, 200, and 300 units for OAB for Botox, when you got to 150, that was the sweet spot. When you went beyond that, no greater efficacy, just more retention. So Botox, like it is for migraine, hyperhidrosis, or muscle spasm acts on the sensory mechanisms to produce the therapeutic response. Of course it causes residual increase, and the recent data suggests the residual increase is greater in older patients and younger patients. And you can see this is data we produced a few years ago, which showed that in, an, in a mouse model within a few hours, you could see the sensory nerves, this is measuring individual sensory nerves, was reduced by Botox. And this is just because the beta-3 agonist first came out of serendipity in Japan after it failed for anti-obesity. They worked out that there was a genetic problem in some people with OAB. And, of course, if you look at the mechanisms that you see at marketing talks, the anti-muscling acting on the beta-3, interfering with muscle contraction, the beta-3 doing the same, may not be entirely correct because if you look at more recent data from Japan, you can see that the beta-3 acts on A-delta and C-fibers very significantly. So at the end of the day, do we have biomarkers? Something that amused me a few years ago was a plethora of new papers coming out of certain places talking about biomarkers for OAB. So here you have a non-specific symptom complex, which in half the cases probably doesn't have to truth over activity, and then you're subdividing into a dry and wet, and then you're taking nerve growth factor and saying it's a biomarker. There was a study called the Shrink Study, which was undertaken, cost several million dollars a number of years ago, and they found out there wasn't any nerve growth factor in the bladder, and the sample sent from some well-known laboratories, there was a thousand-fold difference when it was analyzed, the same sample, blindly. So you've never seen many papers recently on nerve growth factor, now you know why. Bladder wall thickness, yes, you can use it, because if you've got overactivity, you get isometric contractions, but most people don't have overactivity, or half of them don't. And, of course, you talk about one or two millimetres difference. So it's still a holy grail to have a biomarker, but how can you have a biomarker with something which isn't a single condition? I hope you don't feel like that. I'm sure my colleagues are going to make life better for you then. And we're all at the stage where we're just learning. I am, certainly.
Well, good morning, good afternoon. Um, can you pull up my slides for please, Ween, the first uh, first talk? Number five. Number five. Five, yeah. Yeah. five yeah, yeah, there you go. Let's see. Good. Right, so hold tight, all right? Um, my disclosures, I don't think I'm very good. These guys are out of business. The drug worked, but these guys are out of business. The drug didn't work, they're still in business. Um, company not doing so well, so um, I guess it doesn't make much difference for me. So potential management strategies for overactive bladder with or without detrusor overactivity. Decrease activation on the motor or sensory side of the micturition cycle. That's mostly what we do now. Decrease residual urine and thereby increase functional bladder capacity, like with uh, outlet reducing procedure. Decrease the volume of urine delivered to the bladder and thereby de increase the time for activation. And treatment of associated or causative factors that are associated with the symptoms of OAB, bladder outlet obstruction, prolapse, stress urinary incontinence. So what's the ideal drug? I think Eric hinted at this, a drug that blocks urgency, blocks detrusor overactivity where it's present, no effect on voluntary voiding, minimal adverse events, and no safety issues, either real uh, or theoretical. What are the treatment goals? Eric mentioned this. It's really important to set patient re expectations because this is not something that you're going to cure. Um, I lean heavily on this volume and also the EAU guidelines. Like Chris said, it's, it's free. You can go on and look at these. I think that these folks are realistic. You know, they're not afraid to say nope. Um, what about behavioral therapy? You can't talk about drug therapy without talking about behavioral therapy. There's always an argument between the behavioralists and the pharmacology people about which works better. I mean, these are the mechanisms of behavioral therapy. I think everyone's familiar with this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it except to say that the two are complementary. If you use the two together, you'll get a better result than if you use either one singly. This was the original study that was done on incontinence episodes. Uh, the in initial treatment with behavioral adding a drug in terms of decrease of episodes. Initial treatment with drug and adding behavioral. So you'll see that at least in this that was done by a behavioralist, the drug therapy probably as a single entity is better. So let's consider the individual things that we use. Okay, anti-muscarinics, this is Carl Eric Anderson's diagram that I think is, is accurate on a practical basis. If you use a low dose, which is sort of the therapeutic window for overactive bladder, you see effects on afferent activity. If you use a lot to overwhelm, basically the release of acetylcholine during parasympathetic stimulation, you know, that's when you really get effects on voiding contraction. And in the doses that we use, generally you do not see that unless somebody's compromised to begin with. This is just an example. There's one for every drug, but it shows what happens to A-delta and C-fiber uh, transmission, basically before and after the drug. 
So antimuscarinics in the usual doses do not affect emptying. In the higher doses, they can produce retention. And in an overactive bladder patient in whom retention is not a goal, like a neurogenic patient sometimes, as it's been said, they act on the filling storage phase of micturition, not the emptying phase. They affect afferent impulses. So what do you look for when you want to measure the efficacy of an overactive bladder drug? Well, the number of urgency incontinence episodes where they are present, the number of urgency episodes, the urinary frequency over a 24-hour period, the volume voided, it ought to go up, right? The nocturia episodes, and you can use various metrics for quality of life. Now, the international consultation on incontinence rates the drugs according to the Oxford scale. All these drugs get a 1A rating. What does a 1A rating mean? It means a documented beneficial effect with an acceptable side effect profile when it's used for either detrusor overactivity or overactive bladder without detrusor overactivity. So if you look in all the world's literature from back to time immemorial, and you try to get a range of what you can expect with an anti-muscarinic in both men and women, and you look at median values, I mean, this is sort of what you get. Urgency urinary incontinence reduction, 55 to 80% with the placebo, 35 to 40%. I like this metric, and I'll show you why just shortly, the drug-placebo ratio. It's a way of leveling the playing field. Urgency episode reduction, 30 to 50 percent, the placebo, whoops, the placebo is usually about half. Frequency reduction, not so much, maybe 15 or 20 percent, with the placebo about half. And I've never seen a quality of life index that didn't show improvement uh, actually with any drug, not just the anti-muscarinics. What are the adverse effects of anti-muscarinics? And then again, a range, dry mouth, constipation, Cardiac came up as a possibility, but not really in the clinical doses that we use. What about the cognitive issues? Well, you know, the only one that there's really been a lot of data on is the immediate release form of oxybutynin. Now, a couple years ago, yeah, I think that when this article in JAMA came out, uh, you can see that the use of anticholinergic medication was really dinged but it was really a summation effect. The drugs we use plus all the other drugs that have anti-muscarinic characteristics that the patient may be on already. So this concern seems to have decreased lately, but still remains a matter of concern, especially in the elderly person. So in the EAU guidelines, I think that the most um, Striking ones, the ones that I use, and Chris showed you these, they all have a strong rating. They work in patients with urinary urgency incontinence who have failed conservative treatment, i.e. behavioral therapy. You should consider the extended release formulation whenever possible. If the treatment doesn't work, consider elevating the dose for a titratable drug or offering another anti-muscarinic, a different one, or combining it with a beta-3 agonist, and Chris will talk about combinations, and just make sure that the patient doesn't have a lot of adverse events early on and check for the efficacy. And this is sort of how things appear in the EAU guidelines. Um, I think that 
These boxes are extremely useful. Um, they give you the strong points. You can use dose escalation. Transdermal oxybutynin patch is associated with fewer side effects, but a fair number of skin reactions, so not used very much. The extended release drugs are associated with lower rates of adverse events. There's no consistent evidence that one anti-muscarinic drug is superior to another for cure or improvement of urgency, urinary incontinence, or quality of life. Okay, if you remember one thing, I mean, just remember that, and I, I think that that's actually very true. Now, these are the AUA guidelines. I actually got these from an article that said what's going to be new in 2019. Um, first line therapy, behavioral, yep, combine it with drug treatment. Second line therapy, uh, extended release, preferred over immediate release. Can modify the doses of an antimuscarinic or add beta-3s. Don't use them in narrow-angle glaucoma unless approved by the ophthalmologist, et cetera. Use caution when other medications the patients are taking have antimuscarinic properties and be careful with both sets of drugs in frail patients. Interesting that although this was a big item a few years ago, potential drug-drug interactions because of actions on the cytochrome system, which metabolizes these drugs, I mean, I haven't heard this mentioned in anyone's talk for a very long time, either with respect to anti-muscarinics or respect to beta-3 agonists. So how do we look at results? Well, I'm going to give you my personal opinion, okay? Absolute changes are worthless without a baseline, okay? If one drug makes something go down one and another drug makes it go down 0.5, Suppose the baseline for the first was four, and the baseline for the second one was one and a half. Now, which produces the most effect to the patient? So without the baseline, it's worthless. Changes compared to placebo, it's worthless without the baseline. Like suppose, it, I mean, think about it. Unless they give you the baseline, it's worthless. The percent change, well, that's okay because you can compare that. The percent change compared with placebo, even better. If you have that number, then you can construct a ratio between the drug and placebo, and I'll show you what that looks like with the drugs that we use. So what I did was, I figured to level the playing field, I took the numbers from the FDA-approved labeling product information. Okay, so this is what the government tells you about how the drugs work. The FDA allows frequency, urgency, incontinence episodes, volume voided, but not urgency episodes in trials for OAB drugs, and they generally use means instead of medians. I don't know why, because the data are, are usually non-parametric, but they persist in using means. So let's just use the two latest drugs on the market, okay? Not to say one is better than the other, but let's just use these two. Okay, so instead of analyzing or providing a fixed number of urgency incontinence episodes, uh, let's provide an efficacy es estimate that can be interpreted relative to baseline. So let's take a percent decrease and let's construct a ratio that gives a relative magnitude of the effect of one drug compared with another. 
So these are the actual incontinence episodes decreases compared to placebo. Okay, so this is low-dose soli, low-dose feso, high-dose soli, high-dose feso, and compared to placebo. So you can see that, well, you know, what was said in the EAU guidelines, that one is not much different than another, is, is probably correct. And let's look at frequency. And the same thing, I told you probably 20% and then 10% for the placebo, and that's probably right. And you look through and you see there's not a big difference, and you say, whoa, you know, it's actually not much of a difference between the low dose and the high dose either. This is volume voided. Now, this, this really should be an important parameter. Not many people use it, but you can see the increase, basically, in MLs for percent-wise for a drug and placebo for the low and high doses of soli and fesoteridine. So now let's do the drug-placebo ratios, right? Think about it logically. That should be the ultimate parameter to compare one to another, right? So here's low-dose and high-dose soli. Here's low-dose and high-dose feso, all right? So you can say, well, geez, you know, they're actually probably not much different, except, you know, maybe that. You don't know whether it's an outlier, but that's what the government tells you in the PI. So if you want to level the playing field, look at that. And you say, well, how good is Mirabegron? We'll discuss that later. But you look at those numbers for Mirabegron, you say, hey, they're not quite as good, are they? Decrease in frequency episodes. Okay, again, you look at the drug-placebo ratios, and they're really not that much different, are they? A little different, but not that much. What's the reason for the high placebo effect? Well, Chris alluded to the fact that it's behavioral modification, and actually, Senator Hirshhorn did a review article on a number of these and came to the conclusion that it was fluid restriction that almost completely explained the reduction in frequency in the placebo group. And that actually goes for nocturia as well as overactive bladder. Okay, so what about the elderly? Well, the elderly are different. The EAU says that antimuscarinics are effective, so is Mirabegron. The cognitive effect is cumulative. In other words, what other drugs are they on that have antimuscarinic effects? Oxybutynin can worsen cognitive function in elderly patients. These are the levels of evidence. And these drugs, at least in the 2018 report, had not been shown to cause cognitive dysfunction in elderly people in short-term studies. So, so these are basically the recommendations, non-pharmacology first for the elderly, use long-term antimuscarinics with caution, consider the total antimuscarinic load, consider the use of Mirabegron in those people if additional antimuscarinic load is to be avoided. What about antimuscarinics in men? Used to be prohibited. Well, in fact, they can significantly improve urgency urinary incontinence episodes and daytime frequency. They can be associated with an increased post-void residual, but that's really rare if the post-void residual to begin with is less than 150. Combination with an alpha blocker is more effective in reducing these parameters than with an alpha blocker or placebo alone. In other words, antimuscarinic plus alpha blocker, which a lot of us use. Antimuscarinics in men, again, these are the recommendations. 
use it in men with moderate to severe symptoms with mainly storage symptoms and combination symptom or treatment if relief of storage symptoms has been insufficient with monotherapy with another drug and a weaker recommendation, don't use it in folks that have an elevated residual. Now, antimuscarinics do not have a great track record for compliance, for staying on the drug. And people always say, well, yeah, you know, well, that's the same with other drugs. Well, it's not as bad as it is with antimuscarinics, right? Uh, so, so what's the reason for the poor adherence? Well, in basically that review article that looked at the different classes of drugs, low, sort of a combination of low efficacy and adverse events. Um, extended release preparations had better compliance than immediate release. Young adults were quicker to stop taking the drug. Patients had unrealistic expectations of treatment. Discontinuation was higher in women for some reason. Speculation was really not which or why. How about neurogenics? Well, antimuscarinics are the first-line choice treating neurogenic detrusor overactivity and basically doing these. Higher doses or a combination can be an option. These are the antimuscarinics mentioned in the 2018 EAU report. Uh, basically, I did see um, a phase two open label protocol for FESO that was in the BMJ in 2018. Didn't hear anything more about that. What are the what can you expect in a neurogenic bladder with the chooser overactivity? I just put this up, not because I think this is necessarily the best, but you have to admit, I mean, these numbers are pretty good. This is placebo, this is five, this is 10, this is oxybutynin, 15 milligrams. So they really seem to work pretty well in neurogenic bladder patients. So these are the recommendations. Uh, Long-term efficacy and safety well-documented. Maximize the outcomes by considering combinations of antimuscarinics and first-line medical therapy. All right, what about the beta-3 agonists? Well, the mechanisms have been mentioned. This is basically what you read in the pharmacology papers, activation of adenylyl cyclase, cyclic AMP, which is a muscle relaxant, opening the potassium channels, afferent inhibition, as Chris mentioned, and also suggestion of activation of prejunctional receptors that downregulate acetylcholine release from cholinergic terminals. So let's look at the results, okay, same way. Let's look at percent reduction compared to placebo. And again, uh, this is basically from the Mirabetric prescribing information, which was last revised in August of 2016. Okay, so let's try to level the playing field. So this is Mirabegron 50 in one study. This is Mirabegron 20 and 50 and placebo. So let's go for micturitions per day and let's look at this, okay? 50, 25, 50 and placebo. Volume voided increase seems to be less than the antimuscarinics, right? Adverse events with Mirabegron, I think minimal. That's the, you know, that's basically the hypertension, the criteria for declaring hypertension were pretty low. Um, the same thing with tachycardia, but you'd have to say that overall the side effects as a group are certainly less than 
the anti-muscarinics. So these are the guidelines in the EAU. Mirabegron's better than placebo, efficacious as anti-muscarinics for the improvement of UUI. The adverse events with Mirabegron, similar to placebo, which is what I told you. Patients inadequately treated with five may benefit more by increasing to 10. So should be offered to adults who have failed conservative treatment. So 1A recommendation, just like the anti-muscarinics I showed you, beta agonists in men, uh, significant efficacy in treating overactive bladder symptoms, so pretty much the same as with anti-muscarinics. You can add it in a patient that you've been treating with an alpha blocker um, who still has storage symptoms, and this applies only to Mirabegron because it was the only one available. What about the elderly? Well, you know, pretty good statements about the elderly, efficacious and safe. Uh, the cognitive impact of drugs with anticholinergic effects, yeah, but not beta-3. Um, so basically, should consider the total anti-muscarinic load, so maybe you should prescribe the beta-3s or the beta-3 that's available rather than an anti-muscarinic if what you want to treat is filling storage symptoms. What about neurogenics? Well, again, the clinical experience is limited, so you really can't make much of a statement about it. You've probably all tried it, and I'll leave it to your opinion as to whether it works or not. So here's really the question. Well, what's the efficacy compared to the gold standard anti-muscarinics? Well, let's play the same game. Okay, drug and placebo effects for incontinence episodes. Now, with, so if we go through these and look at the low, high doses of the anti-muscarinics and Mirabegron, and then we play the same game and come up with the drug-placebo ratio, I mean, you know, it's, you have to look at that and say, well, okay, it's lower. Does that mean it's not a useful drug? No, it doesn't, but it's lower. Frequency episodes, uh, you know, basically, same thing, lower. So combining anti-muscarinics, Chris is going to talk about that. Persistence, the persistence seems to be better. Well, if it has fewer side effects, you'd say, well, you know, that's probably the reason. These are the 12-month persistence rates, actually, in an article that, that Chris did that I was asked to comment on for European urology. So, and as you can see, uh, it really fared the best of the ones. It was the only beta-3, obviously. The reasons for poor persistence in that article that were pointed out are up here. Unrealistic expectations, uh, hard to believe adverse events because they're really very few, but it's probably unrealistic expectations. Mixed incontinence, you know, pretty simple. Treat the most bothersome symptom first and see what happens. For patients that have urgency predominant mixed, either anti-muscarinics or beta-3 agonists. What about alpha-1 adrenergic receptor antagonists? Well, in men, the current ones we used are considered effective for both storage and voiding symptoms in men that have BPH, but there's really no evidence that monotherapy is effective in patients with storage symptoms only, and the ICIRS came to the conclusion that it's ineffective in women for overactive bladder for filling storage symptoms. 
So, and as you know, they do reduce the IPSS in men and increase the flow rate, but the placebo rate is very high. I think everyone's familiar with the side effect profile and which are the worst with respect to vasodilation. The intraoperative floppy iris syndrome is an issue and decreased seminal fluid with ejaculation, whether you call it retrograde or none or less. So the alpha blockers basically, um, again, recommendation for men with moderate to severe lower urinary tract symptoms. What about 5-alpha reductase inhibitors? The EAU recommendation used in men with moderate to severe LUTs and an increased risk of progression, so the ones that have larger prostates, obviously. Phosphodiesterase inhibitors, they relax smooth muscle. There are basically a number of them, a number of different families. Uh, basically, this is what they do, and again, you see they moderate sensory function. So their mechanism only Tadalafil is approved in the U.S. for use in men with lower urinary tract symptoms. No one really knows why they decrease lower urinary tract symptoms in men, but basically this is what they do. They seem to have a minimal improvement in IPSS, but as opposed to alpha blockers, they don't really change the flow rate at all. And again, I think everyone is familiar with the contraindications for the use of 5-phosphodiesterase inhibitors. What about estrogens? I think Chris mentioned for lower urinary tract symptoms, overactive bladder and DO, it's a 2C. Stress incontinence in women, no. Lower urinary tract symptoms, filling and storage, maybe. So this was the conclusion uh, from the Cochrane database. Overall, less frequency and urgency in vaginally applied estrogen uh, in women. So this was the EAU guidelines. Thanks very much. Thanks. Back onto the chapel folder. Thanks very much. And so, as we've heard, clearly there's a huge amount of information out there. And logically, if you've got two different drugs with two different mechanisms of action, is there a benefit in trying to combine both? I mean, ultimately, what we're trying to achieve is we're trying to improve a situation where, with time, there's often, due to the natural history of the problem or other intercurrent illnesses, a decline in the situation with worsening of symptoms. And what you try and do with treatment is to reverse that process, but clearly all active treatments acting pharmacologically may have adverse events, which of course counteract that. And so it's that balance to bear in mind with anything that you're using. And really combination therapy is trying to achieve this by basically trying to look at the different components, put it together with the greatest benefit for the patient. So let's look first of all at beta-3, and anti-muscarine, because you hear the AUA guidelines are the first to actually introduce that idea as an acceptable combination. And the combination with these two drugs was based on the fact they're acting by different mechanisms that we already mentioned. And a number of 
placebo control studies have been carried out, but I'll only focus on a couple of these. Firstly, the Symphony study, which was a phase two study looking at various doses of solifenicin, as you can see there, 2.55 and 10, and mirabegron with solifenicin at the dose of 25 and 50. Incidentally, as you probably noticed, outside the US, most people in Europe and the Far East are using 50 milligrams as the first dose with mirabegron, and that was because of FDA's initial concerns about safety with mirabegron. So you can see here that there was a good signal that looking at uh, mirabegron 50 and 25 and solifenicin 5 milligrams was the way forward from a phase 2 study. So the BESIDE study was a larger study, which is phase 3, which was carried out, where you can see that there was initial, because of the US regulation, starting with 25 migs of mirabegron, and we went on to 5 milligrams of solifenicin and 50 of mirabegron, uh, compared to solifenicin 5 and 10. And if you just look briefly at the data, you can see here, looking at adding these to actually improve symptoms, you're talking about incontinence episodes, there was, appeared to be a minor benefit compared to 10 milligrams of solifenicin, but obviously you'd be lessening the dry mouth effect and other anticholinergic effects. And again, if you're looking here at micturitions, there was similarly a benefit. And again, if you look at incontinence, there wasn't much of a benefit, which was the only thing adverse here uh, compared to 5 and 10. If you're then looking at non-inferiority for incontinence, it, you can see it was non-inferior but not superior, although it was superior for reducing uh, frequency. In terms of uh, quality of life, there was some benefit, presumably, as we heard earlier from Dr. Wien, because of reducing side effects. And you can see here, in patients' perception of bladder condition, it was also better received. There were no QT or other cardiovascular effects. And in fact, if you're looking here at effects on pulse rate, there was no signal at all. Now, I know there's a warning for all of the agencies about the beta-3, about cardiac effects and so on, but that's not come to to pass in looking at the real-life data. The only contraindication is somebody with uncontrolled hypertension or on one of the beta blockers because of co-metabolism, and that's metoprolol, nothing to do with being a beta blocker. So it seems to be very safe with no effects on blood pressure unless it's uncontrolled. So combination therapy is certainly an option for a patient. So if they don't respond to 5 milligrams of solifenicin, you can add in the mirabegron. Uh, before going on, go increasing the solifenicin, but it's up to you to charge, and of course, cost comes into it. Alpha blockers and 5-alpha reductase inhibitors is an old one. That was the first combination. You're all familiar with that. As you know, the data is that um, finasteride and dutasteride from the GSK data published about four years ago by Curtis Nickel were identical at a year. The rest is marketing with the... Um, Dutasteride data clearly um, having a focus on larger prostates in many of the trials that were carried out. The only thing just to say is if you're using two drugs where there's an additive effect, an alpha blocker with failure of ejaculation, which is effect on the vas and seminal vesicles, and dutasteride where you've got an effect on erectile function and ejaculate, you can see there is an additive effect on side effects. Alpha blocker and anti 
This has been recognized for a number of years, as Dr. Wien mentioned, the concern many years ago until he uh, uh, started off the program of looking at combination of an anti-muscarinic and an alpha blocker. You can see here that alpha blockers are effective in storage symptoms. The principle is anti-muscarinics were used alone, and this is work that uh, was, was carried out a number of years ago, and then the combination of alpha block and anti-muscarinic is something which was suggested. And then that's led on to a development program. And here you can see 18 RCT suggesting a benefit with that. It hasn't really got, got legs, although there is a, a formulation in Europe which is marketed, which has got licensing based on good evidence. I can't seem to advance the slide at the moment. Maybe it's down there. I seem to have frozen here. Fair enough. Moving too fast. So anyway, there was a combination of solifenis and tamsulosin, which did show benefit. Again, voiding efficiency, it's a concept Dr. Wiener introduced, uh, was important. In other words, the residual versus the functional capacity. And that's where the 150 mils as a cutoff came into play. I'm just having a slight... Ah, that's the one, is it? Oh, that works better. Forgive me. Okay, and you can see a standard design just to prove the point that there was efficacy, and this led on to a bigger development program with data out to a year confirming that. And you can see here, looking across frequency and patient, patient's perception of global condition, you can see, looking at the combination in dark blue, it won out across the board. So, certainly there's good evidence that uh, these various... Drug, commonly used drugs can be used in combination. As we've already heard, you've seen this diagram about the PD-5. And when you introduce a drug in Europe, you've got to compare it, because the European Medicines Agency, to an existing drug marketed for that reason. And you can see here that Tamsulosin has been used for many years, improving LUTs and quality of life. And you can see here, looking at the IPSS, that interestingly, uh, Tadalafil was slightly better than tamsulosin in men who would normally be called as having BPH with lonely tract symptoms. And so five milligrams a day of this, when it comes off patent very shortly, may well be used very commonly as an, as an alternative to an alpha blocker, all in combination with an alpha blocker. And there's clear evidence, if you look at meta-analyses, that Tadalafil does improve quality of life issues and the IPSS. Alpha block and PD-5, there's really good evidence that you can use this, but no proper studies uh, that have been carried out. 5-alpha reductase and PD-5, a small study, nothing new in this field. Here the principle is the PD-5 will reduce the 5-alpha reductase adverse events on sexual function. So you can see, we live in a time when whatever you choose to do, and when you've got licensing authority, which will be very shortly for the new combination of a beta-3 anti-muscarinic, you can try anything. Cost is a major factor, but if you can use a lower dose of a drug and minimize adverse events, it's probably going to help the patient if they're working by different mechanisms. So we live in a time where a tailored approach to the patient, thinking of all of the factors, coexisting medical conditions. That's one of the great advantage for us as urologists, is we are the patient for the male doctor, we are the, sorry, the doctor for the male patient. And we need to take account of all the medical conditions. And when you're using a medical treatment, 
and then going on to surgery, you need to take account of all of these factors. So it's that tailored approach and personalized medicine which is the way forward. Thank you. Nocturia slides, please. All right. Great. Thank you. All right. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here to talk about Nocturia and both uh, monotherapy uh, most of the time and some combination therapy. So Nocturia is very prevalent. It's probably the uh, most prevalent lower urinary tract symptom. Uh, Bothersomeness, bothersomeness of nocturia starts when nocturia is more than two episodes. But as you can see here, it is the most prevalent lower urinary tract symptom. ICS defines nocturia as the complaint of the individual has to wake uh, one or more times uh, at night to void. Uh, each void is preceded and followed by sleep. And of course, the uh, uh, sleep cycle is defined as when we intend to go to sleep to the time that we intend to wake up. So if you look at the pathophysiology of nocturia, there's three broad categories. You're going to see this slide about 10 times now. Um, if we divide up the causes of nocturia, uh, they can broadly be uh, A, primary sleep disorder. Patients wake up with nothing wrong with their urinary tract, but they're terrible sleepers. That's not a problem that we as urologists can fix, uh, and they go off to the sleep disorder clinic. And then there's three broad categories. Polyuria, people who drink too much. Uh, Bladder storage problems, you've heard about overactive bladder and BPH. That is a condition that causes a secondary condition of nocturia. And then finally, nocturnal polyuria, the production of too much urine uh, at night. That's what we're going to concentrate on. And if we look at the etiologies of each of those categories, it becomes pretty obvious. Uh, polyuria, if I drink too much, I pee a lot. That's day and night. Or people sometimes drink a fair amount just before bedtime and that results in nocturnal polyuria, and then, of course, diabetes insipidus or diabetes mellitus. Bladder storage problems, OAB, BPH, neurogenic bladder, cystitis, interstitial cystitis, bladder cancer, et cetera, those are problems that happen day and night. It doesn't go away at night. And then, finally, nocturnal polyuria. And if we look at nocturnal polyuria, there are three broad categories within nocturnal polyuria's etiologies of nocturnal polyuria can be medical causes, behavioral causes, and hormonal causes. And we're going to delve into each of those in more detail. So again, BPH and OAB are conditions that in turn uh, result in a secondary uh, incidence of nocturia. They of themselves uh, are not the cause of nocturia. Uh, they don't result in nocturia other than the other effects that they have throughout a 24-hour cycle. And lots of drugs have looked at uh, uh, their effects on nocturia, drugs directed towards OAB or drugs directed towards BPH as secondary outcomes, do these drugs actually work for nocturia? And most of these studies have been done retrospectively, looking at huge data sets for alpha blockers, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, uh, and antimuscarinics. And these patients were recruited for BPH or for OAB. They do the study, and then they look at the effects on nocturia. And as you can see here on the, on the right uh, here, uh, their effects on nocturia are not very good. Uh, drugs for BPH and OAB work modestly for nocturia. Why is that? Well, as it turns out, most people with nocturia actually 
have nocturnal polyuria. So if you don't treat the nocturnal polyuria, you're not going to be very effective in treating the nocturia. And these are three different epidemiological studies uh, from three different locations. And what you learn here is that more than three quarters of patients with nocturia actually have nocturnal polyuria. They may also have BPH and they may also have OAB, but if you look at just the nocturia patients, three quarters of them have nocturnal polyuria. So in order to treat this condition, which is a disease of the kidneys, not a disease of the bladder, you need to address the nocturnal polyuria component. So how do you make the diagnosis? It's avoiding diarrhea, something I learned from Jerry Blavis 20 years ago, uh, which is now so common, but Jerry was harping about this 20 and 30 years ago. You can't treat these conditions, whether it be BPH, OAB, or nocturia, without a diary, and you'll learn a lot by doing a diary. A diary is simply a record of the volume and time of each void and the amount of fluid the patient uh, uh, consumes, and Chris brought that up, Dr. Chappell brought that up earlier in his anecdote about his lawyer friend who, who uh, was drinking three and a half liters or three and a half gallons of fluid a day and was refractory to all the overactive bladder treatments. The only way that, that you can make that diagnosis is, is to uh, have a diary. So nocturnal urine volume uh, is measured on the diary, and in essence, nocturnal polyuria is if you make more than one-third of your urine at night. We can do these complicated mathematical uh, formulations, but in essence, if more than one-third of your urine comes out at the time when you, uh, the time from the time that you go to bed to the time that you wake up in the morning, that's nocturnal polyuria. And if, in fact, you have nocturia due to nocturnal polyuria, you need to identify it and then, and then treat it. So here's a couple of sample diaries. Uh, I do make my patients with voiding dysfunction fill out a diary, and if you tell me that your patients won't fill them out, well, then they're probably not going to follow up with whatever you prescribe for them to treat them. So it's a good indicator for those patients who are actually going to be uh, compliant with your therapy. So here's a, a diary of somebody who simply has overactive bladder. They void day and night. Their voided volumes are one or two ounces per void. It doesn't go away at night. This patient doesn't have nocturnal polyuria. This patient has overactive bladder. Frequency, urgency, that's going to direct what I'm going to treat them with. This is a patient with polydipsia, also happens to be a lawyer. They drink too much. I can't fix that with drugs, and I can't fix it with, with Botox, and I can't fix it with neuromodulation. I can fix it by telling them that they drink too much, and if they reduce their fluid, their symptoms will get better. They may choose to continue to drink, in which case, we have an agreement that I can't fix them. Nocturnal polyuria, this is a pretty good example of what nocturnal polyuria looks like. So this patient voids uh, five times, including the first void in the morning, uh, five times, uh, makes about two liters of fluid overnight. And if you look during the day, sorry, he only voids three times the entire day, small voids. Uh, most of his urine output is at night. I can give him an overactive bladder drug, but it's not going to make him better. He doesn't have a problem during the day. He has a problem at night. I have to fix his nocturnal polyuria to figure out why he has it first. And this is a patient who has both problems. So this patient has nocturnal polyuria. They put out almost 1,300 cc's overnight. And then during the day, they also have overactive bladder. They're voiding two or three ounces per void. So I have to fix two problems in this person. I wouldn't know that unless I did a diary. So back to the diagram of polyuria, nocturnal polyuria, bladder storage problems. Now you have a basic understanding of how we're going to attack this. Bladder storage problems, I'm going to treat OAB 
and, and bladderella obstruction with those types of agents, polyuria. I'm going to talk about behavioral modification and nocturnal polyuria. So the treatment of nocturnal polyuria, back to those three categories, behavioral disorders, medical disorders, and hormonal disorders. You notice I haven't mentioned DDAVP yet. It's coming. It's coming. So behavioral causes uh, of, of, of nocturnal polyuria include patients who take their diuretics at night, patients who drink a six-pack of beer before they go to bed, people who drink six cups of coffee before they go to bed, people who eat a bag of potato chips uh, before they go to bed. These are behavioral things that can be uh, counseled uh, on your patients. Medical diseases that cause nocturnal polyuria, renal disease, uh, heart disease, congestive heart failure, peripheral uh, 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 venous uh, stasis uh, problems, hypoalbuminemia. Uh, uh, these are problems uh, that I'm not going to fix as a urologist. Uh, and then finally, there are hormonal causes. And those hormonal causes fall into two categories. So uh, those related to arginine vasopressin, AVP, and ANP, or atrial natriuretic peptide. Let's talk about treatment of behavioral causes. Uh, I'm going to have these patients... Uh, restrict their fluid in the evening, re reduce their alcohol, caffeine, uh, afternoon naps, elevating their legs, put on compression hose. These are all behavioral things that actually, most recently in a Japanese study, actually looked at behavioral modification for treating nocturnal polyuria in affected individuals, and it actually works. It's surprising that there was no uh, good evidence to show that these behavioral measures actually work, but they do work uh, if you institute them for nocturnal polyuria. For medical illness, congestive heart failure, COPD, obstructive sleep apnea, I refer them. I don't treat congestive heart failure. So those, those are treating the two categories of nocturnal polyuria, which are non-hormonal. Now let's talk about the hormonal causes, the drug-related causes, the causes that brought you to a pharmacology course. So arginine vasopressin is released from the posterior pituitary. It's a very powerful agent. It doesn't last very long in your plasma. It is gone in a very short amount of time. It has two effects. It affects a V1 receptor uh, in uh, the vascular bed and in the uterus, and it affects V2 receptors, uh, which are located in the kidney. The V2 receptors are the ones uh, that we are interested in. These V2 receptors are located in the distal and collecting tubules of the kidneys. When you stimulate a V2 receptor, something called an aqua uh, a aquaporin-2 uh, fuses with the cell membrane, and you get water absorption uh, back into the interstitium of the kidney through that aquaporin-2 water channel. That's what AVP does. It causes this fusion of an aquaporin molecule and causes reabsorption of free water. This is a cartoon. This is the best cartoon I've ever seen uh, that actually explains something in nephrology, which to me is still a mystery. Um, this is what AVP does. So on the right side... Uh, is the normal collecting tubule, so glomerulus, descending, ascending, uh, and then collecting tubule, uh, and this is in the normal person. Uh, we get a large volume of dilute urine. Once you give AVP and those aquaporin molecules uh, fuse, you get a very concentrated urine as free water is absorbed back into the interstitium of the kidney. That's what DDAVP does. So why does it work for nocturnal polyuria? Uh, we can't give AVP, as I said, it lasts very briefly in the plasma. DDAVP is a synthetic analog of arginine vasopressin of AVP, and it's metabolized much slower than AVP. It has mostly V2 effects, 
So when we give DDAVP, it has very little effect on V1 receptors. You get very little pressor effects on the vascular bed. That's why there's not a terrible hypertensive crisis when we give uh, DDAVP, as, if, as opposed to giving AVP where there would be a hypertensive crisis if we were able to give it. So it increases urine osmolality and decreases uh, urine volume. It was reviewed by the uh, latest ICI, and it got a grade A recommendation for the treatment of nocturia. The onset of the drug given orally is about 30 to 60 minutes. Lower dosing is recommended in females. Uh, it appears that their risk of hyponatremia is higher. They respond to the drug at much lower doses in terms of efficacy. The adverse effects of DDAVP, a headache, facial flushing, nausea, most important is hyponatremia, and the risk of hyponatremia appears to be tied to age, older people more susceptible to hyponatremia, gender, females more than males, low baseline sodium, so if you're starting with a sodium of 129, 130, they are at increased risk, and proper dosing. Very easy to overdose DDAVP causing hyponatremia, and also patients who have a large amount of free water intake in the evening, uh, that can also precipitate hyponatremia. Important thing to note about the hyponatremia as an AE for DDAVP is that it may not occur the first day, it may not occur the second day. It should be checked on the first week, and then you should check serum sodiums uh, within a week, a few months, and then it can happen any time down the line, so you need to frequently check or, or at least intermittently check serum sodiums in this patient population uh, who are uh, generally tend to be older. So how, do, how well does DDAVP uh, work? Uh, the systematic review from the journal in 2014, 10 papers, 2,100 patients. If you look at 10 micrograms compared to placebo, it reduces just less than a void per night. But even more importantly, this is a sleep disorder, and by giving DDAVP or improving sleep, you're improving the first time to the patient has to wake up to go to the bathroom. That period of time until that first awakening tends to be the highest quality sleep. So if you can extend that interval, you're improving their sleep quality, even if you don't get nocturia down to zero. By improving that first time to awakening, uh, you are actually improving sleep. What is the incidence of hyponatremia? In a meta-analysis, this is an older study, and I stole this slide from uh, Dr. Wien. Um, uh, this is uh, uh, older data from oral therapy, about 7.6%, so it's not insignificant. And we talked about the risk factors, low sodium, women, and elderly. And there's the uh, recipe for following these people, a baseline sodium, uh, first week, first month, and then about every six months is your recipe for uh, getting serum sodium monitoring in these patients. Again, just because they, they don't have hyponatremia after that first week, they are still at risk for getting hyponatremia in the long term. There's a, uh, uh, up until uh, two years ago, uh, we only had a, uh, uh, oral tablets and a nasal spray. Uh, the dosing started at a point to 100, 100 micrograms. Uh, most recently, a, a nasal spray uh, was FDA approved that had a better bioavailability, allowed lower dosing. Unfortunately, that company no longer exists. Uh, it's unclear what's going to happen to that uh, agent. I will show you some data from, from Noctivia, from Noctiva, excuse me. 
And then there's an oral uh, disintegrating tablet, which was approved last year uh, from Faring Pharmaceuticals, which is an oral melt. It's been available in Europe for, for many years. Also allows lower dosing. So this is some uh, data from Noctiva. Again, this is currently not available in the U.S. Uh, hopefully some other pharmaceutical company will pick it up. What I want to point out is uh, these uh, baseline, uh, baseline uh, uh, nocturia episodes of about three to three and a half, at the higher dose, you're reducing your nocturia uh, uh, episodes by one and a half. So about a 50% reduction, pretty good uh, for the agent. And this is uh, the percentage of patients who had a reduction in 50% of their nocturia episodes. So almost half of the patients had a reduction uh, in their uh, uh, nocturia episodes. An increase in urine volume, yes, you can see substantial increases in urine volume. So, uh, I'm sorry, decreases in urine volume. So, decreased urine volume at night by 10 ounces. That's a substantial decrease uh, in urine volume. Um, so, what about combination therapy for nocturia? As I told you, uh, nocturia doesn't live in, in isolation. There are some patients who just have nocturia from nocturnal polyuria, but they live in a world where they also have OAB and, and BPH. So if you treat the BPH or the OAB and the nocturnal polyuria, what happens? Uh, this is a study that we published a couple of years ago uh, in uh, LUTs. So again, thinking about a multifactorial approach to nocturia, Chris, uh, Dr. Chappell uh, uh, alluded to it a little bit. It's a small study. We took 100 females uh, with diagnosed overactive bladder and nocturia, a subset of which had nocturnal polyuria, but not all. And they were randomized to tolteridine uh, with or without uh, uh, DDAVP, a 12-week study. I'm just going to skip to the punchline here. Punchline is if you treat these patients with two agents and they actually have two conditions, it works better than either drug alone. Um, what I'd like to show you here is uh, this is the sub. This is comparing the subset of patients who had nocturnal polyuria to the patients who didn't have nocturnal polyuria. And if you actually look at the outcomes in those patients who got both drugs and had nocturnal polyuria, there was a substantial improvement, substantial difference uh, versus the patients who didn't have nocturnal polyuria, suggesting that, in fact, you can treat both conditions uh, with uh, two agents. So in conclusion, nocturia, very, very common, probably is the most common lower urinary tract symptoms. There's three causes, behavioral, bladder storage problems, and hormonal. Diary is your most important diagnostic tool. Treatment is based on the underlying cause. There are some, you know, currently one new formulation for DDAVP. Hopefully there'll be two, which both suggest a lower incidence of hyponatremia. And again, combination therapy for a combination disorder uh, seems to be rather effective. Thank you. And then we have one more talk. And Dr. Wien's going to talk on future therapies. Yep, so again, hold tight. Um, you saw those. You might be interested in how many drugs actually succeed that go into trial. The percent for phase one, this is 2001 to 2015, probably the same now. 63% of those that get to phase two, 31% of those that get to phase three, 58%, so overall, 9.6%. So these are the potential management strategies for overactive bladder. We saw these before. 
those are the possible sites of action. I have some pretty pictures. I'm going to skip over those in the interest of time. I said pretty pictures. These are available. These are all from a guy named Warren Hill, who's actually a neurologist. Okay, so what's the main problem? Well, the guy who came up with this term uroselectivity is in the audience, Carl Eric Anderson. The main problem is you can't find a drug that acts just on the lower urinary tract, no matter what the focus of action is, whether it's on the bladder or the ganglio or the central nervous system, et cetera. So these are new approaches. Chris has talked about combining drugs, combining drugs with other forms of treatment. We really haven't talked about that, but it's something to think about. And I'm going to talk about new variants of currently accepted principles and new targets. So these are the new targets. Don't be scared of the list, okay, because um, none of them work. Um, <laughs> so these are the anti-muscarinics that I could find that are in development. Um, this is from our chapter in Campbell's and also from an article that Carl Eric did. And actually, I don't think things have changed very much. This is an interesting strategy, combining an anti-muscarinic with something that stimulates salivary secretion. Um, it's an interesting concept, um, but I think that the role for anti-muscarinics, uh, my personal feeling is that we've gone about as far as we can go. This was something I showed before, and anti-muscarinics, rest in peace, I don't think so. This concern seems to be a lot less than it was previously, but be careful. New beta-3 agonists, solibegron, very selective compound, positive phase two results in women. No heart rate changes, no EKG changes. We're basically awaiting phase three studies. There's a once daily preparation as well as a twice daily preparation. Ritabegron, uh, big hoorah in the beginning. Um, very selective. Primary efficacy endpoint, which was frequency. I'm not, I'm not sure what, FDA always loves frequency, although 24-hour, probably the least important, but that was not met. Ritabegron, again, it's relatively selective. This is what it did. Phase one, increased volume at first contraction, good. Phase two to three, the results weren't published. This is from another one of Carl Eric's articles. It seems that the primary efficacy endpoint was not met, typically understated, but you know what it means. So am I going to mention Vibegron? Yep, I am. Um, it'll be presented here at the meeting. I can't give you the current results from phase three because the company didn't want those presented, and rightfully so, before their major presentation. I can show you what's in the literature. So selective beta-3, um, this is what it does in an animal model, a cl little closer animal model, actually. Um, so. This is one study, a phase 2B study versus tolteridine, randomized double-blind, overactive bladder, wet and dry, only eight weeks. Basically, these were different dosages that were used. Um, it was an interesting design. It was mostly women. It was done in Japan. Now, what the numbers handed to the FDA will be, don't know. This is Vibregron 50 and Vibregron 100 milligrams. This is tolteridine, four milligrams, and this is placebo. 
So this is decrease in urgency urinary incontinence episodes, okay, the percent. And this is the drug placebo ratio. Not bad. This is urgency episodes, urgency episode reduction. Okay, this is 50 and 100. These are the numbers, the drug placebo ratios compared to tolteridine. Not bad. This is micturition episodes. Again, the drug placebo ratios compared to tolteridine. This is the second one. This is Vibagron, or this is adverse events. A um, little surprising here because they really shouldn't do that, but this is an outlier, certainly, and I think people will be concerned about that because it really wasn't much different than, actually it was greater than tolteridine. Um, this is another study. This is Vibegron versus imatafenacin, which is an antimuscarinic. It's actually supposed to decrease nocturia as well. So again, we'll just switch to this. Uh, a little less than the previous study, right? This is urgency incontinence episodes. This is a decrease, but with a fairly high placebo rate. So the drug placebo ratio is about the same as it was with the matafenacin. This is urgency episodes. So again, um, you know, less than in the previous study. And this is frequency. So the dose in the United States that's being submitted is neither 100 nor 50. This is volume voided. So by Vagron 50, by Vagron 100 versus placebo, very low in this particular study. And adverse events, minimal for dry mouth and constipation, no reported hypertension, tachycardia, QTC changes, and no induction or inhibitory effect on the cytochrome systems. So if you look at the drug placebo ratios and you take, again, these are not, this for Mirabegron, this is from the product information. The Vibegron really is, is not, obviously, because the, there is none as yet. Um, but if, if you look at this, you see that it compares very favorably. And let's see how good a drug CEO you are. So if you were going to choose a dose for Vibegron, I'll give you three choices, 100, 50, and 75. So 100, how many people would choose 100? How many people would choose 50? How many people would choose 75? Okay, 75, okay. New targets, negative potassium channel openers, calcium channel antagonists, great ideas. Problem is uroselectivities. Promising animal models, disappointing clinical results, Issues with side effects elsewhere. Calcium channel antagonists, great results in the lab. Knockout mice, markedly impaired contractility. Um, clinical trials, either no positive results or as a, the fact that they have side effects, um, as you can assume from their use in cardiac disease. The prostanoid receptor antagonists. Uh, PGY2s acting through an EP1 receptor, they stimulate contractile activity by sensitizing afferent nerves. So you would think that by antagonizing these receptors that you would decrease sensitivities. And again, 
promising animal models, minimal clinical results. Uh, some companies have used this as a construct for detrusor underactivity by using these compounds to try and sensitize to stimulation, thinking that one of the causes of detrusor underactivity is actually a lack of sensation or a lack of perceived sensation. Uh, Deloxetine, um, surprisingly positive results for overactive bladder in women, as well as stress incontinence, but too many side effects. The COX inhibitors, again, we talked about prostaglandin, et cetera, um, but these have a lot of side effects. Uh, Chris had actually written an editorial about their use in Nocturia, saying that, well, you know, they could affect nocturnal urine output, they could also affect bladder contractility, but the problem is that when they were used previously in overactive bladder, they all had a number of side effects that caused people not to use them. Vitamin D3 antagonists, minimally positive results. Neurokinin receptor antagonists, nice idea. Um, this is an interesting story with neurokinin receptor antagonists, one in particular. This is basically what they do experimentally. This was one that was used for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, which in retrospect made overactive bladder symptoms better uh, in a group of women. And I'll just show you the percents. This is a great example of how to make a relatively small, even significant effect look bigger so you'd think, wow, this is actually percent change. So this is like 2% and this is like 8%. <laughs> um, and this is the urgency episode, so this is like 10% and 20%. Um, unfortunately, that drug was not suitable because of drug-drug interactions, so there was another one that was similar that was used against tolteridine, and basically tolteridine was superior to that drug, so its development was uh, deep-sixed. It's, actually, it's unfortunate that they didn't put the two together, use the anticholinergics with the NK1, because no one ever figured out whether that would be okay or not. GABA receptor antagonist, GABA is the chief inhibitory compound in the nervous system. You know, I was at an editorial board meeting this morning, I said, you know, when I read promising would be or could be more than once in a drug article, I usually reject it, period. Um, and unfortunately, that's, you know, sort of what we have here. Purinergic possibilities, this got a lot of play back when these articles were published originally. Um, ATP, you know, certainly seems to modulate bladder hyperactivity. It's released from the urethelium. The P2X3 antagonists um, seem to be effective experimentally, and knockout mice certainly show an increased intercontraction interval and a reduced peak pressure. So experimentally, this is one of Carl Eric's slides. I'm glad I credited him because he's in the audience. Um, <laughs> So this basically shows that the threshold volume for contraction goes up and the frequency goes down. Uh, the endocannabinoids, um, you know, smoking pot, basically. Um, in reality, unfortunately, there's little clinical data about these. They were thought initially to affect patients with MS favorably who had symptoms of overactive bladder. So 
this is what a meta-analysis and systemic review showed. Well, yep, it was statistically significant to the point of the reduction of 0.35 urgency incontinence episodes per day. So I'm not sure that, you know, a lot of people would regard that as a terribly significant result. Promising animal data, the TRP antagonists, these are receptors that are involved in nociception and mechanicosensory transduction. There are a few families of these. They act as sensors to stretch and chemical irritation. And basically, this is what they do. These are the inner contraction intervals. They go up. The voided volume goes up. Um, TRPV1 was tried. Hypothermia is a problem. Number eight, uh, they caused a perioral burning sensation in clinical trials. So I think this is a reasonable conclusion by Francisco Cruz. Opioid receptors, <clears throat> mu receptor agonists may, may modulate micturition. Uh, there's some promise here, but the one article about the drug basically was retracted because of some apparent statistical issues. Other ideas, Botox encapsulate it, put it into the bladder. Uh, there was a flap about this initially. Uh, the problem is that it lasted only about three months, so you'd have to catheterize someone as opposed to looking in their bladder probably every six months uh, to inject it. And this was just a comment from Nature Reviews Urology, which I think is a, a pretty good and objective journal. So as you can see, they were not terribly uh, enthusiastic about it. So. Combining drugs, there is some promise there. Combining drugs with other form of treatment, new variants of currently accepted principles, uh, new targets, as you can see, not much there. So there are many old targets, some new targets, some promising animal data, but no new current success, successful breakthrough. So let's see what the results of this one are at the 75 milligram dose as a beta-3 agonist. Thank you. I want to thank you all for attending. Please fill out your course evaluations. Uh, if you have any questions, the panelists will be up here for a few more minutes. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the AUA. Thank you for continuing to listen to the AUA University podcast. Our podcast can be subscribed to and found on Apple iTunes and on Google Play. Please email education at auanet.org with any feedback or suggested topics. We look forward to hearing from you.